Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Hi everyone, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to uh, preach the Word of God. I am continuing from uh, Karen, who did an outstanding job doing James 3. Um, We're going to continue in James 4, and I'm just going to pray and dive right in. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Uh, I want to thank you for the fact that it has been preserved as your revelation uh, to us. But I want to thank you also for your spirit. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you said your spirit will lead us into truth. And I want to thank you, God, that what we're doing is not simply a religious, ritualistic, academic exercise. God, I want to pray that we would just enter this moment with a sense of believing that your Spirit wants to illuminate certain aspects of your Word to us and lead us into truth and lead us into freedom. And so I pray for your Spirit to enable me to be faithful to your Word. I pray for your Spirit to enable the rest of us to have ears that hear what the Spirit is saying, and hearts ready to change. pray this in Jesus' name. We continue out of James 4, and I'm reading out of the uh, ESV. It should be up on there. Uh, James 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do, not you, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he made dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, those who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in all your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The war within our souls. Uh, Very young man who was in his 20s, was chosen to go to Bible college, was like a a leadership training 
year, and we were in a house, a four-bedroom house, and there were uh, 18 of us in this four-bedroom house. Five guys in one room, three guys in another, and then uh, equal amounts of ladies. There was this big steel door that separated the guys and the ladies from the house. And, um, and I remember there was the, the sun patio outside. And, um, and, and it was kind of an unwritten rule that whoever got there first, because remember, there are 15 people in this house. Whoever got there first, was, it was kind of your space. No one else would get in there because there was this understanding there's a, not a lot of alone space there. Um, and I remember um, going in there and after dinner and there was someone else's stuff there. And I knew whose stuff it was and I didn't like him at all. And he didn't like me at all. So I sat down right next to his stuff and, um, and decided to be really holy and open my Bible and just spend time with Jesus, you know. And, and so he came in and he said to me, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what do you mean, what am I doing here? This is like an open space, you know. And to be, to, let's be honest, no one had said that I couldn't be there. There wasn't a sign that said I couldn't be there. I, I did know that I shouldn't be there. It was my passion and desire to be there. It was a war that I was losing at that moment. I didn't know how badly I would lose the war, but I would lose the war. Um, and so he said, you need to leave. And, and I respond really well to challenge. I just back down, and I'm like, you're right. I should just leave, you know. And, and so I said, I'm not leaving. He said, no, you better leave. I'm like, or oh, what? He says, I'll make you leave. I'm like, well, I'd like to see you try. And then I saw spots. And he just punched me in the face. And I remember giggling. Because I couldn't believe what had happened, you know. And then I remember, as my passions and desires began to war more intensely with me, I'm like, now he's done. I did not feel any sense of shame. I did not feel any sense of remorse that I had caused the situation. I felt like, now he's going to be expelled. And so I went to my room, and I felt really good. And the next day, I had, like, you know, black eyes... And, um, and the, the head of the, of the college just said to me, hey, Nick, what happened? I said, I, I don't want to talk about it, you know. Because I wasn't, I, I did not want to talk about it. I wanted to kind of to pretend to be holy, you know. <laughs> so, that, so that as they made a decision about who they should keep in this house, it would obviously be the aggressor who violated and abused me should leave this house, you know. Um, and then I remember him sitting down with me and, and him saying to me, you know, you caused this. Um, and it's because you wanted a reaction and you caused a reaction. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, we both stayed there. We both made up and we're really good friends after that. But I, I look at that when I read James and it says, Who, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, I mean... We don't really see people wailing on each other because someone is sitting in your chair here, right? We don't see people kind of coming to blows about those kinds of things. But remember when we spoke about the idea of hot hate and cold contempt? This was an example of hot hate. This is an example of where you get so engaged that you can't help it and you're going to do something wrong. But we live 
the war within our souls is more about cold contempt than it is about hot hate. Last week, Karen told us about the spewers and the stuffers. Um, and, and this was a spewing example. And the stuffing example is the kinds of things that maybe we put on Facebook or Instagram. The, the kinds of things we say to one set of friends that we don't say to another. Internally, the war within ourselves is our fanatical pursuit of what I believe I deserve. And this is amplified by our culture's cheerleading that says self-actualization is not only possible, but it's going to soothe the scream in your soul, but it just leaves us tired and unfulfilled. Marketers are great at this. Marketers are great at fueling the war within our souls because they target our desires, they target our weaknesses, and they even target our pride. My, my girls have uh, got me into watching Parks and Rec, and then the most amazing thing about Parks and Rec is treat yourself, right? <laughs> so I'm going to treat myself, you know, chocolates and massages and whatever, and going to treat yourself. Um, and... And, and I'm, I'm looking at this thing to myself, it's like, how is this different from any other day in your life, where your life is designed about your desires and what you want, and that's the internal war that we have within. The external war is a little different. The external war is where our calls for justice and righteousness actually cause division, because they're not coming from a place of internal peace and conviction, but from a mixed cocktail of rage, of, in, of uh, disappointment and contempt. We're angry about something, we're frustrated, we've been let down. So, so this idea of pursuing justice, or this idea of pursuing peace, like James says, to remain unspotted from the world, pursuing justice, to visit orphans and widows, all of that is mixed up, and it's, it's, it's actually this, this dangerous cocktail of rage, disappointment, and contempt, and we sprinkle a bit of justice and disappointment on there. We can't understand why we can't get along. We can't get along because it's very difficult, as Karen said last week, it's very difficult to be a peacemaker if you are at war within yourself. It's hard to bring others to peace if there's an internal war going in inside you. So how do we deal with a war within our souls? So I'm going to talk about three things. We identify what is an ally and what is an enemy. We examine our motives and we draw near to God. So let's look at the first thing, identify allies and enemies. That's important when you're in a war. And when you're in a war, you, you want to know who's on your side and who's against you. And James says to the people that he's writing to, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is so important that he basically repeats himself. He uses the phrase adultery, which is a common phrase that's used in the Old Testament, and it's a betrayal of a covenant. It's a selfish act. We make a promise to be faithful to someone, and then what we do is we pursue intimacy with another. So that's why he's talking about other, because Israel promised to be faithful to God, and then they pursued their own desires. In the context of a marriage, you promise to be faithful to your partner, and then you pursue the intimacy with another. Let me say this. I've had the privilege of seeing God restore relationships that have gone through adultery. I've had the privilege of seeing God work with both the hurt, per, the hurt party and the perpetrator and bring them to freedom. 
An adultery is something that God can forgive in the very natural sense, in terms of between a husband and a wife. But also adultery is something that God loves to forgive in His people. Where He says, come back to me. Draw near to me. There's, there's the sense in which James is wanting to warn us, and that's why he's using such a strong word. He's trying to help us understand that the world is not an ally. The world is not neutral. The world and the spiritual powers that are created around that are actively conspiring to draw us in to an idea of, of our lives being purely about ourselves and about these 80 or 90 years that we have here. And the interesting thing for me is, as a follower of Jesus, when Jesus said to his disciples, unless you carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple, I was thinking about this the other day. When Jesus said, unless you carry your cross, there was no religious context to that like there is for us now. There was no sacrificial context like there is now. When Jesus said to his disciples, you need to carry your cross, what he was saying to you is, the rest of the world will believe you are a criminal. The rest of the world will believe you are a murderer. The rest of the world will believe you are an insurrectionist. Those were people, thieves, those were people that were crucified. When Jesus was talking to his disciples and he was saying, there is no um, kind of stepping on both sides of the world and being part of the kingdom of God. There is being part of the kingdom of God and the world. But Nick, hang on. I mean, we've spent so much time trying to understand that, that actually the world is not our enemy. Well, God needs, that is true. The world is not our enemy in the sense that God has called us to love the world, but the world is our enemy in the sense that we allow it to shape us. What has James already said? He says that we are to remain unspotted or unstained by the world. And throughout Scripture, there isn't the sense of let's be separate from the world. There isn't the sense of let's pretend we're better. There is the sense of spirit-led and spirit-empowered engagement with the world. 1 John 2, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. We are called to love and serve and participate in this world with acts of mercy. Now, there's three ways to do this. We assimilate with the world, and I've spoken about this, so I'm going to be quick. We, we literally are saying to the world, there's no, nothing different about me, and they believe us. So we assimilate the values, everything that the world preaches, we preach, or we separate ourselves. We, we build this idea that, that we are better, we have the kingdom of God, and actually anyone that is out there is not, worth of our, not worthy of our love. We, we become tribalistic. But the way in which God has called us to engage is the way that Israel was called to engage when they were taken into exile, where Jeremiah says, through God, you are to be a blessing to the city that you are in exile. We are in exile. Welcome to exile. Exile happened in England a while back. It's post, uh, post-Christian, post-modern. It's sweeping our nation, and we need to become comfortable with the fact that this has not taken God by surprise. He has equipped us to live as, as those in exile. In the Porterbrook Manual, it says this about exile. We Christians are not in the position of conquering champions. 
We are rather exiles who have been planted in cultures that are far from our true home. We've been planted in exile for the express purpose of praying for and seeking the good of the cultures in which we've been planted. We are to work for the good of our adopted homeland. We are to love those around us, being salt and light to attract those that are in the darkness. We do not do this to leverage our influence into potential bid for domination. That's important. If anything, sorry, if anyone is going to conquer anyone or anything or at any time, it will be God and he will do this in his own time. We are to examine our motives. Verse 2 of James says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly or ask amiss or with wrong motives to spend it on your passions. So I've really been praying to God that I just want to be more engaged in, in the context of like being kinder to the environment. I also want to kind of do my duty as a, as a, as a patriotic American and buy American. And, and so I, I just feel led to buy a Tesla. <laughs> what? You mean, you mean my motives, my actual true motives are coming out in that? Like I can't hide from the reality of this? I mean, it's obvious, right, to see my real motive in that. It's kind of comical. Um, but the reality is, there's a lot of prayers that we pray and desires that we have that we kind of couch in religious language that's a little more subtle than Nick wanting a Tesla. A little more subtle than the idea of like, I'm doing something for the environment. You know? A little more subtle than doing something, I'm doing something to keep jobs in the United States. You know? A little more subtle than that. I've said this before, that, that you do not have because you do not ask. Prayerlessness is not about a lack of discipline. Prayerlessness is about a lack of dependence. Because most of the time, we don't pray for our desires. Why? Because we just go after them. Is, is that what I want? I'm just going to go get that. But when we enter into prayer humbly, and this is maybe why we don't do it, when we enter into prayer humbly, asking God, God, I really want this. There is a high likelihood that my passions and desires that are contrary to the kingdom of God will be revealed. Maybe it isn't the fact that we've lost the idea that, okay, God is not powerful, God is not loving, He's not going to answer my prayer. Maybe some of the times that we don't pray, we don't pray because I am not sure that I really want the Spirit of God to search what is deep in me and actually reveal that. You know that we've been praying for a building. You know that one of my prayers is not that we would just get a building, is that someone would give us a building. You know, that, that, that there would be a sense of which, like, we have this amazing setup for us. And, 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 and God has searched my heart with that. And I've had conversations with God. God, we want this to be a tool for your task. Doesn't that sound cool, right? It's like God's like rolling his eyes, you know? What else, Nick? Oh, man, think of the good we can do for the community. Yeah, what, what else, Nick? God, it's tiring. We've done this for like eight years. Okay, I understand. It's hard on our volunteers. Yeah, it's true. Don't you feel better now? Yeah, I do. I do because those competing passions, and they're not necessarily competing. I just, I had the chance to be honest with myself. 
whether that's a child, whether it's a job, whether it's a, a new start. When, when you enter prayer humbly with unfiltered honesty, what God says is, yes, my child, but come, let me help you. Let me show you what's in your heart. When we, when we lack vulnerability in, in the context of prayer with God, all we do is we camouflage our desires. And what happens there is the Spirit of God is not able to help us. And God is not able to engage us in there because we're not being honest with Him in that. Expressing our deep desires to God, unfiltered, enables the Spirit of God to question them and then also to bring healing and restoration. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't pray for something that we desire, but we need to be open-handed. We need to realize that we are God's children and He is a good Father. We were in Thailand and um, we wanted to go on this boat trip um, from island to island, and, and, uh, and it was amazing. It, it was like, if you want to find a deal, come to me. We found a deal, you know. It was like 50 bucks for the five of us to go on this like, island excursion from island to island and uh, dive off this, um, this boat and swim around with Nemo's and Dory's and all those kinds of fish, right? Um, and, then, and then with the ewes that, that were here, we said, hey, you should come with us on, uh, on that. And, and I said, you know, and one of my kids was particularly excited about it. They had an, an amazing time. And I said, oh, it's probably going to rain tomorrow. And she said to me, I'm going to pray that it doesn't rain. And I'm like, I, I don't think that God will care whether it rains or not. You know? I, I'm, what I'm trying to do is like protect my, my child. I lacked massive amounts of faith. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? You know? And Marsha, who was here with Dan, said this. Well, I'm going to pray too. And, and I suddenly realized there that we can be boldly humble with God as long as it's not the result that crushes or raises us. As it happened, it didn't rain. And I had to eat multiple slices of humble pie. So, so the reality is God does care about us, but this is what Scripture says. God, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. There's a catch to that, and it's the first part of that. Delight yourself in the Lord. Why? Because when we delight ourselves in the Lord, His desires are our desires. And of course, He wants to give them to you because they're not desires that war within our souls. Now, unanswered prayer is difficult. It's complex. It's, it's painful. It's probably okay if I don't get my Tesla, right? But what if you don't get healed? What if you don't get the child that you're praying for? What if, what if a loved one dies that you've been praying for? It's, it's complex. It's painful. And unanswered prayer is not, let me be clear about this, not because you've asked in opposition to God's will. Sometimes God is doing things in us that we don't understand. In James 1, we understand that the trials and difficulty and suffering is part of what God uses to shape us. And so if you're in that moment, even this morning, where you have been praying for something and you just are not seeing that come to pass, I want to pray that you would continue to do that. 
Continue to come before your Father. Continue to allow the Spirit to search you. Continue to believe that He is a good Father. That's why He tells us to draw near. We examine our motives when we make our decisions not based on calling, but based on comfort and convenience. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Uh, we were out with a couple Friday night, and uh, there were a group of Muslim ladies asked us to take their photo. Um, and, um, and so they were making fun of me because I was... I couldn't see. You can see I'm wearing glasses now. I can't actually see the phone anymore. So I'm trying to take their photo like this. My arms are not long enough, you know. So there's no problem with my eyes. It's just that my arms aren't long enough, you know. <laughs> um, and Muslim guys have a saying called in, inshallah. It's actually three words. It sounds like one word. And we had this conversation, like, is it one word or two words or three words? And in, in Arabic, it's actually three words, but it sounds like one word, inshallah, which means, which means if the Lord wills, or exactly if God wills it so. And so the idea that James is saying is you should constantly be saying that whatever you do is subject to whether it is God's will or purpose. Um, and when you're in the Middle East, like we were when we were in Bahrain and Oman, literally, as people say goodbye to you, and you say, okay, I'll see you tomorrow, I'll see you tomorrow, if God wills it so. Hey, we'll be there, if God wills it so. It's also in Greek culture. It's the same thing. Hey, I'm going to do that, if God wills it so. Now, there are times where you don't want to hear that, right? There are times where you want to say to your kids, you know, hey, do your homework. You don't want to hear them say, if God wills it so, you know? <laughs> You know, when you go to the DMV and they say, hey, I need a registration, when will that be ready? If God wills it. Well, I guess the DMV, it is, if God wills it so. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's probably the only government organization where it really is just dependent on that. But, but there are times where you don't want to hear that. But ultimately what James is saying is that, is that we have taken the idea of the will of God outside of our decision making. And what we're saying is whatever I see is what I'm going to pursue. And James is saying, if your entire life is a vapor and a mist that vanishes in the morning, how about one decision of your entire life? Like, how little is that? If your entire life is a mist and a vapor, what about this one decision? And it's this idea that we actually kind of push God away, and, and, and we can do one of two things. We can use the if God wills as like a spiritual procrastination, kind of like do your homework. So, Nick, I've called you to do this, or you're sensing a, a calling God to do something, and you're like, I don't know if God wills. I don't know. I don't know. We, we could do that. It's like the maybe check on the Evite, right? This is like, if God wills, maybe I'll, I'll be there. But what I've come to realize is that what James is saying is it's the difference between rowing, drifting, and sailing. Let me say this. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a sailor. I watched Master and Commander last night, and I feel like I can actually do that now. You know? <laughs> it's like master classes. You, know? you watch something on YouTube, and now you know how to cook. You know? um, and so 
And so the idea of what I believe James is saying here is that when we row, if you're in a rowboat, what are you doing? You're using all your own energy. He's saying, don't, don't do that. And when you're drifting, what are you doing? You're just drifting around. No, I'm just going to rest. I'm just going to rest in God. And actually, unless there's a, a plan, a vision, and a purpose, something that you're headed at, you're just going to drift with a current. Maybe you'll bump into something. Maybe you will. But instead of rowing, using all our own energy and strength to get what we want, instead of drifting, just saying, you know, spiritual procrastination, you know, if God wants to do something with me, he can. What we need to do is actually use strategy and activity that is designed to catch the wind of the Spirit. And so that's what these men were doing. Trust me when I tell you there was a lot of activity. Trust me when I tell you there was a lot of work. But it wasn't wasted work because they were checking where the wind was coming from. And that's what James is saying here. He's not saying don't make decisions. He's not saying you shouldn't go trade. He's not saying you shouldn't move. He's saying, have you asked God? Have you checked the wind of the Spirit? Is all this energy and effort that you're putting in there, is it going to be blessed by that wind? Or are you going to get there because you're so good at rowing? Make sense? A posture of humility and surrender in this sense is more important than the decision. Strategy, goal setting, and planning is not evil. But it's the manipulative and self-deceptive maneuvering that is birthed by our desires, passions, and unfettered by a deep love for Jesus, a kingdom call, and a heart that says, your will be done that makes us a friend of the world. Now read that again. Strategy, goal setting, and planning is not evil. It is the manipulative and self-deceptive maneuvering that is birthed by our own sinful desires and is unfettered by a deep love for Jesus, a kingdom call, and a heart that says your will be done, that makes us friends of the world. What is the greater purpose of my life? I'm a child of God. I'm called to be with Jesus, but I'm also called to make him known. Does this decision fit in with that? What is best for the bride? Do I believe that I am necessary and needed in the context of the community in which God has planted me? And the reason that he's planted me here is so that I can bear fruit and provide shade for others. Do I believe that people are more important than things? These are some good questions to ask when we make decisions about what we're going to do and where we're going to do it. And mixed motives are so dangerous here, right? I mean, the Tesla example is super obvious. But there are other mixed motives that are a little more subtle when it comes to that. And that's where friendship and leadership is important. You need both. Because generally, friends are cheerleaders. Generally, leaders will question and challenge. And you need both. You need to be encouraged in taking a risk. You also need to be challenged in saying, is this what God requires of you. Luke 12, 29 to 32, don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink. Don't be anxious for the Gentile world eagerly seeks after these things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. This is my problem, is verse 32. Don't be afraid because your father delights to give you the kingdom. My challenge in this is that I know that the world can't satisfy. I know because I came to faith later on in life. 
but I'm not sure that God can satisfy. And so I'm stuck in this weird position. I know that the world can't satisfy. I don't want to be a friend of the world, but I also don't know that God can satisfy. And so what happens is I just bounce back and forth instead of placing myself here as a friend of God and saying, God, how do I do this? How do, I, how do I deal? How do I understand what are the enemies of my soul and what are friends and allies? How do I examine my motives? How do I make decisions that are not based on convenience and comfort but are based on calling? Well, James tells us the way in which we do that is that we draw near to God. God gives the grace that we need. Verse 6, He gives more grace. Amen. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God is not calling all of us to mourn and be wretched. But what he is saying in this context is those that are proud... Those that are trusting in riches, those that are making decisions without thinking what is God's will and purpose for this, those that are making decisions based on their own comfort and are making God an enemy and the world an ally, those are the people that God is challenging through James here. How do we receive more grace to be able to make these kinds of decisions? Well, he tells us we submit to God. Now, submission is not one of the things that we think it is in, in, in the context of the word. Submission is a military term. It means surrender. That's what it means. It means, it means that, okay, God, I surrender the idea that I know any better. It recognizes that God knows better, not like an abusive boss, but like a kind and firm father. We resist the devil. Again, this is a, a militaristic-like term. I can't submit to God without resisting the devil, and I can't resist the devil without submitting to God. I love this because what he's basically saying is that in choosing to submit to God, you are resisting the devil. In choosing to resist the devil, you are submitting to God. It, it, it's, it's one action. Why? Because there is no gray and nuance in this. One is a friend, the other is the enemy. And so by choosing to surrender to one, you are resisting. Now, this is not avoiding. This is, again, a military term, an active resistance of the devil and what he thinks is important. He will flee, not because of our own strength, but because we have submitted. And a greater and more regular submission to the Father, it's easier to resist the trap of deserving. Lastly, we draw near. And you can come up. Now, this is a different word. This is not a military word. This is not a business word. This is an intimate relational word. This is draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. I want to say this. I, I'm so grateful for the resurgence in literature uh, within the Christian world of the idea that, um, that we are not just utilitarian cogs in a kingdom machine that we are sons and daughters, and our first and most important call is to be with the Father. That is 100% true. But the Father loves us so much that usefulness and utility is part of the joy that we get to participate in. And so drawing near to God in an intimate term helps us to do what James is saying. Now, this is important. You cannot do any of this alone. 
because it becomes a dead work. It becomes purely legalistic. So what James is saying is draw near to God so that he can help you clean your hands. What does that mean? That God is able to forgive you of actions that you've perpetrated and help you not to perpetrate those actions again. Purify your heart. God is able to help you deal with the emotions and the double-mindedness that you face. God can help you with all of those things. Imagine the freedom of no anxiety, no competition, no fights, and no quarrels. Imagine a stable and joyful soul and a deep satisfaction and certainty that God is a good, powerful, and kind Father regardless of the craziness of this world. Imagine being truly able to love those around you that disagree with you. Being truly able to. Not just bear with them, but to truly love them. Imagine being able to make decisions for kingdom's sake that will establish a legacy that is eternal and will bring you more joy than you could ever imagine. This is God's promise to us if we draw near to Him. And how do we do that? Well, for most of us in the room, we've, we've done that through Jesus Christ. The only one that can draw us to the Father is Jesus. When He says, draw near to Him, we have Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that said it is finished. We know that because of Him, we have access to the Father. Because of Jesus and the fact that He defeated the enemies of sin and Satan and death, we can clearly identify who our enemies are and who we belong to. Because of Jesus, who sent His Spirit to live in us, when we come to a place of prayer and dealing with the war within us, His Spirit is in us, able to examine our motives and hearts. Paul tells the Corinthians that no one knows the spirit of a man except that spirit that is in him that was sent by Jesus when we placed our faith in Him. And Jesus is the only one that can help us draw near to God. If you're confused by the promises and lies of this world, this is what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're groping in darkness, this is what Jesus says. I am the light of the world. If you're hungry for meaning, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you're feeling unseen, uncared for, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. If you're feeling excluded, like you're not part of the in crowd, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the one that gives you access. If you're feeling unfruitful, disconnected, Jesus says, I am the true vine. If you want a life that will establish an eternal legacy, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for your power. And I want to thank you for your promise that you would not leave us alone. And Spirit of God, I pray right now as we respond in song, and as we just contemplate what it is that you've said to us through the Word, that you'd enable us to identify in the context of the war within our souls. What is, 
What is our true enemy? God, help us to examine our, our motives. Just be boldly humble before you. And you'd help us, Lord, to, to just come to a place of saying, God, I can't do this without you. God, you give more grace. So this morning, I pray that you would give abundant grace. That as we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.